So here we are in, uh, in Lino, Bartholomew Close, in the city of London. I'm sat here with author of Stolen, How to Save the World from Financialization, Grace Blakely. Grace, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me on. I wouldn't have thought that you would choose to spend any leisure time whatsoever in the city of London. What accounts for this choice? I mean, in many ways, like, this is kind of... The, the best place for me to be, I think. Um, obviously, like my book is about financialization. So it's about not just the kind of expansion and the size of our finance sector and the size of the city, but the way in which the logic that is generated here, um, it, which I call kind of financialization, has impacted other areas of the economy. Thank you. Um, thanks. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think it's really important for us to understand and center because so often you know, we overlook or understate the importance of kind of finance and impacting the rest of the economy. I think it's important for us to actually realise the extent to which this place has had a significant impact on the history of, uh, of, of British capitalism, basically. And that's, um, yeah, I think too often on the left, we kind of shy away from centering a, a villain in the story. We're very keen to kind of just talk about how nice everything would be if we could all just work together. But actually, we need to be able to explain why things aren't working in the economy. And I think a big part of that is actually looking to the center of power and the center of wealth in this country, which is here. So in terms of location, then obviously great product placement for the book. Exactly. And, yeah, uh, that's and very reason. much on point. Um, you recently toured your book in the US. How did that go? What, yeah, were that you was surprised amazing. by any of the reactions to it? Um, was I surprised? Yes, in a way, because it talks quite substantially about British capitalism. Um, and I was kind of mainly talking to groups like the Democratic Socialists of America, like Jacobin, kind of groups on the left in the US. And I was surprised at the extent to which those who had read it and people listening to the discussions were willing and kind of seeking to draw lessons from the British experience that could be imply, uh, applied to America. So I think the kind of distinctive thing there is that, you know, the argument of my book is that we had this kind of moment in the 1970s where uh, during that kind of period of crisis, there was this choice that we were faced with, basically, which was, well, are we kind of going to go more towards the like socialist route advocated by people like Tony Benn, or are we going to go for kind of full-throated finance-led neoliberalism? Obviously, we ended up going for the latter. And that that battle that took place during that time provides unique lessons for our time, for the period since the financial crisis, um, and for socialists all over the world. And I think those in the US were very keen because they don't really have that history of like a socialist movement, mm. were like quite, I don't know, they, they found it useful to think about um, the ways in which these two groups have historically kind of fought against each other, even if the kind of presence of the socialist left has been less um, obvious in the US and how that can like allow them to learn things about how to push back uh, during this very particular moment where you're seeing socialists resurgent in, in the US. Do you remember where you were 10 years ago when news of the collapse of Lehman Brothers came out? I would have been 15. <laughs> I don't I don't 100% remember, to be honest. I wish I did. The thing that I really remember during, like, my childhood, and especially, you know, at times I was, I was kind of studying history and economics, so it kind of vaguely came out to me, was that I always remember on the TV, kind of before the financial crisis, there were constantly, on, like, you know, the, like, kids' shows or teen shows I was watching, there were constantly adverts for, like, release the equity from your home. Like, have you got bad credit? 
like remortgage, uh, you know, whatever. I like rem- I knew what like a CCJ was by the time I was like 15 because it was constantly on these adverts saying, right. have you got like bad credit? You can um, you can remortgage or like get, you know, a, a credit card with us. And I remember thinking that that was weird because it was I think it had changed a little bit and they'd become more prominent. And it's only looking back on that now that I think, ah, okay, this was such a significant part of that pre-crisis period, that consumer um, debt-driven growth model where people were literally taking on debt and after debt after debt and like releasing the equity from their homes to finance consumption and that this was driving this incredible boom that we can now look back on and realize that, wow, that was obviously completely unsustainable. Mm. But in many ways, we've failed to learn any of those lessons. And you're seeing, in some senses, the reemergence of those dynamics today. Yes, yeah. And so I suppose you would have also remembered, as I do, because there's a few years between us. I think you must be six years younger. Yeah, I'm 26. Um, right, so 31. And, and then you must have remembered seeing the adverts subsequent to the financial crisis yeah. of send in your gold yes any yes, gold yes yeah 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 i do i remember that in particular oh, i'm wondering goodness, well, what so is the right. deal with gold before yeah. i really understood commodities yeah no that was yeah no you're right that's totally fascinating i do remember that and it was obviously you know during any crisis those very very safe assets massively spike in value and i think we're seeing that to a to a small extent at the moment because obviously there's a widespread sense that we're going to be going into another financial, well, another economic downturn, if not another financial crisis at mm. some point in the next couple of years. So, yeah. So you're, you're being whisked away after this interview up to Canterbury, yes. right? So tell us more about what you're going to be up to there today, since we, we'd be remiss not to talk about the coming election. Yeah, so I will be up there campaigning. Canterbury was obviously one of those seats that was completely and a completely unexpected win for Labour mm-hmm. in 2017, um, partly on the back of the kind of, you know, massive change in the way that young people were voting and they were turning out more and disproportionately voting for Labour. And I think that's very much linked to the experience of young people since the financial crisis, since basically financial capitalism broke down mm-hmm. and was no longer able to provide the same increasing living standards, hope for the future that had been provided to our parents. Young people since the financial crisis have basically, you know, had a decade of wage stagnation and can't afford to buy their own homes. Yeah, it's actually quite hard being the son or daughter of a middle earner that benefited from Thatcher's capitalism, where you want to suggest that the collapse was not just a punctuation mark in an otherwise complete sentence. It's, it's actually the full stop. It's a moment yeah. where we really need to take stop. That's a really good quite, way of putting it, yeah. It's difficult, though, to sell that to a generation who really feel that all was going well, and they're not quite sure what went wrong. Yeah. But they also know that what they have, they've worked hard for and they don't want to yeah. let go of it. That presents such a huge challenge and it will obviously in the coming election as well. I mean, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, the generational I mean, gap. I couldn't have put it better my, uh, like myself, to be honest. I think that's really true that like there's this idea called the paradox of thrift which is that when people see the value of their assets go up in a bubble they presume that it's because of their own hard work and savings right whereas actually it's just you know they're caught up in this economic model and for most people who are able to kind of get on the uh the the train i suppose of like rising house prices rising stock prices because of their pension funds at the very beginning of the Thatcherite revolution, they saw the value of their assets skyrocket. And sure, they fell a bit after the financial crisis. And for those who got on the ladder towards the latter end of that of that boom, that was significant. But, you know, you could, might have seen your house, if you bought a house outside of London in, like, you know, in the outskirts of London in the 1980s, you would have seen that increase in price, God, like, like three, four, five times. Mm, mm. Um, and you would have assumed that, oh, well, you know, if I could have done it, then why can't, young people do it and then you get these narratives of you know well it's because they're spending too much money on avocado on toast they're lazy they don't kind of you know work the way that we did whereas actually you know getting um 
that generation to understand that what they lived through was an historically unprecedented, perhaps other than, you know, the, the point before the, the Wall Street crash um, moment in in the history of capitalism where asset prices just boomed because of all this debt that was being created. It was always completely unsustainable. And now we're living in the aftermath of that. Like my parents kind of get it now because like they've read my book and they're like, oh, actually, yeah, that's a really good point. But um, and, and it, 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 I think it encourages them to think very differently about the challenges that young people face. So I think, yeah, you're right. Getting that message across is important, but it's also important to speak to older people in the language of their interests as well mm-hmm, because a lot of people yes. yeah like a lot of older people kind of have this money stored up in their home and they think oh that's set aside for my retirement i'm going to be fine but actually their pension funds they've probably got a deficit because we're living through a pensions crisis where most pension funds don't have the capacity to meet their liabilities the state pension is very low and many of these people have to end up selling their homes to pay for end-of-life care because social care is completely like not working in this country. So there are also very good reasons to speak to these people that the left, that like very good ways the left can speak to these people and say your interests actually are not just with like a continuation of the status quo. So this is perhaps the book that all young people can buy for their parents for Christmas. That is if a really good marketing if strategy. If there's, any, if there's any sort of need to reconcile family differences post-election. So looking at this menu, what takes your fancy? That is a good question. I think I'll have the uh, Bavette steak sandwich. You've had longer than me to be able to decide. I'm going to have to go just. It's okay, go off no the pressure. Bat. We're not. We're, <laughs> this isn't live radio. <laughs> the steak sandwich does look good. Yeah. Two steak sandwiches. You paraphrase Gramsci, calling what we're living through right now the interregnum, mm. the place between the death of an old world and the birth of the new, the uh, crossroads, as you put it, between extinction and utopia. Explain that, if you will. Yeah, so I mean, the argument in the book, as I kind of alluded to, is that, you know, every model of capitalism has its own internal problems and and contradictions that kind of prevent it from working as well as it once did as time goes on. So you can look at the financial crisis and, and look at how that was rooted in a model that was created in the 1980s based on private home ownership, based on the deregulation of finance that led to a massive increase in private debt privatization of various collectively owned assets the kind of withdrawal of the state from providing certain things to people uh, and that that all culminated in this big financial crisis based on individual consumption high levels of debt and a state that wasn't really there to kind of regulate that model or um, or step in when things got bad um, and those contradictions were rooted in the kind of economy that, that Thatcher created in the 1980s. And the reason that she was able to create that economy was because the old one during the 1970s had broken down as a result of its internal contradictions. And this was obviously the kind of post-war consensus model of, um, you know, the state was more actively stepping in to uh, really alleviate unemployment. It was working with unions and companies to kind of determine pay and who got what from economic growth. Um, and that model kind of worked for a while um, because it soothed class tensions. It soothed tensions between those who owned the stuff and those who worked for a living, but it didn't completely eliminate them. And then when in the 1970s you got the oil price spike, you got kind of um, a f- falling profits, then suddenly uh, those like tensions between labor and capital, people who live off work and live off wealth, exploded. And you had industrial action, you had economic turmoil, stagflation, etc. 
And so those contradictions were inherent in that model as well. And basically, if you look at any way that capitalism is organized, the same sort of thing happens. You get 30 years of, of growth or stability, followed by a 10, 15 year period of crisis, followed by the emergence of a new economic model. And I'm arguing that today we're living in one of those periods where the old model's broken down. We aren't quite sure what's going to come next. And those moments are always moments of political polarization as well as kind of economic turmoil because suddenly the parties that say things should broadly stay as they are we just need to tweak things around the edges are decimated whereas mm -hmm. those on the the kind of extreme ends who say we need to go this direction or that direction that makes much more sense to people when the status quo isn't working which is why you're seeing you know the conservatives go off this way and say we need to kind of uh, break with uh, europe and you know tilt towards the rest of the world and kick out the immigrants and whatever and those on the left saying we need to basically move towards a model of democratic socialism that hands power back to people in uh in their communities in their workplaces so they're very very different models of the future is it the case though that one always wins or that as a lot mm. of people argue and hope in fact there is a compromise ultimately i think during these moments these these historical moments are not moments of compromise in my opinion so i think that you know that, that we have two choices you can't smush together a bit of socialism and a bit of like far-right extremism right i mean you can try but it probably won't remain stable for very long i think you know we have to choose a model and then when that model is chosen that's when you start making the compromises it's a similar sort of thing with like thatcherism and blairism right thatcher determined the model blair then accepted that and said we're going to change it a little bit by making it less unequal and da 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 da, -da. or you know in the post-war period the Attlee model, you know, the Conservatives accepted the existence of the NHS, even though they'd fought it to begin with and just changed it a bit. Right. I think, you know, there is room. There's obviously always room in politics for compromise, but there are some points at which you have to make a decision mm -hmm. about what kind of society you want to live in, what kind of economy you want to live in. I think we're at one of those points right now. One assumption that both socialism and capitalism make is that human beings all want the same things. For capitalism's part, it assumes primarily that we all want to own the same things mm. most of the time. How feasible is it that a consumer society such as ours, that has defined prosperity as the ability to afford nice new things, yeah. switch suddenly to having less of what is nice and new, but more of what is essential? It's quite a hard sell to the British public post-Thatcher, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that, again, is... A really, really good way of putting it. Um, and I think in many ways, people understand this intuitively. Because if you go to most parts of the country, people know that another nice TV isn't going to make them happy, isn't going to deal with the fact that they are lonely and isolated, working way too hard for not enough pay, that their sense of community has been destroyed. They probably don't know their neighbours. They probably don't really have a sense of, you know, of place um, of rootedness and that that is generating all sorts of kind of political and psychological ailments that can't be fixed by just going out and buying new stuff um, I think speaking to that you know the, the alienation created by the Thatcherite ideology of you are defined by what you can consume and the fact that that's reached its peak as well as the fact that there are an increasing number of people that cannot afford to consume the things they need to kind of acquire the identities that they would like to acquire um, leads to the situation we're in now, which is where most people are probably crying out more for a sense of solidarity, a sense of community, a sense of belonging than they are for like 
nice new stuff. But it is a question of how we articulate that because often the right can use that feeling to say, well, the problem is just that, you know, there's all these brown people living here that you don't know, right? Which is obviously not why they, you know, these places feel this way. I think the archetypal example is what happened to mining communities after Thatcherism. You know, they were built on this sense of solidity, of solidarity, of community. And the destruction of those industries, the destruction of those places completely tore that apart. Um, and that has to do with, with changes to the economy, with the centralization of our economy, with the financialization of our economy, not anything really to do with like, you know, other people coming in. There are commu- examples of communities all around the country where that are diverse and people have a sense of, of belonging to a we that is not defined by race or, or whatever. So I think it's important for the left actually to start making these arguments, which are maybe not as um, familiar to people who come from a very intellectual tradition, but are actually, yeah, rooted in, in, in people's everyday experiences. You write about the uh, neoclassical economists who failed to predict the financial crisis, partly because the crisis wasn't just about economic policy, but because they believed the logic behind the great moderation period that you can explain in a moment of high interest, low inflation, was the answer to instability for the long term. Why did they get this so wrong? Um, I think it was partly to do with a kind of hubris, right? It was partly just a sense that uh, that central bank independence in particular had generated the the conditions that, that we were living through, which broadly seemed to be kind of increasing prosperity. It was also a failure to look at the right things. So because of the way that econom- the um, economists after the kind of neoclassical revolution were under- sought to understand the economy, they focused on top-line indicators that we're all used to hearing about, so inflation, GDP, employment, etc. What they weren't looking at, looking at was um, financial markets or the banking system. Um, and that's because they broadly thought that financial markets were efficient. They didn't think really that bubbles could emerge, or, they, or if they did, that they wouldn't... Um, cause as much as many problems as the government tried to regulate them um, and because they didn't really have a kind of um, a theory of, of money and finance that really explained what went on in the in the banking system um, so all that meant that you know they were just focusing on inflation and the thing is you can get a really big bubble in house prices in the price of a particular asset without it particularly impacting or impacting in the same way consumer prices so the only really way to deal with with that is to kind of try and, you know, use particular kinds of policies that are linked to the fi- uh, to the financial cycle, kind of what are called macro prudential policies. Um, and whereas, you know, we were very focused on just using monetary policy, using interest rates to control inflation, uh, and that was part of the reason that we got the bubble emerging in the first place, and obviously a big significant factor behind the financial crisis. So the fact that economists thought they had tamed the financial cycle actually ended up making the bubble that they were living through even worse. One thing that um, a particular neoclassical economist said, uh, Robert Solo, something to the effect that it wasn't necessarily that the theory was proven, but that the facts just happened to validate the theory. Yeah. That's incredible, isn't it? No, because economists don't build models with reference to empirical facts. True, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they build models with a reference to assumptions about the world. Um, And then they say, it doesn't matter about the assumptions, as long as the end result broadly reflects reality, then the model must work. And yeah, I mean, you know, this is still, neoclassical uh, economics was really like properly hegemonic before the financial crisis. Less so today, although it's still very dominant, but its dominance is being challenged, which means that, you know, 
uh, more historical schools of economics, like institutional economics, um, and more kind of empirical schools of economics that do take that kind of do try and build theory with reference to fact are becoming more mainstream. But you know, the neoclassical economists still hold the ball, so that's a problem. <laughs> okay, so it's been a crutch for the Conservative Party for the last decade to say that Labour effectively caused the financial crash. And reading your book, you give reasons why fiscal policy under new Labour certainly did tend to, if not so, the seeds within that soil. But is it fair to say that Labour under Blair and Brown essentially hoodwinked the country into thinking that they were doing something different to Thatcherism? Uh, I, I don't... I think, yeah, probably to begin with. Yeah, because I think probably people did buy into that to begin with, that there was a sense of hope that things would be different after you know the massive increases in inequality and the kind of breakdown of society that you'd seen under Thatcher um and yeah as you said with fiscal policy they did try and do that you know there was more redistribution there were kind of higher taxes but there wasn't really a fundamental change to the way that the economy worked and it was really when it came to the management of the finance sector that they did help to sow the seeds of the financial crisis although it is worth bearing in mind that they only exacerbated the problems that had been created by Thatcherism. Right. Basically, by accepting the terrain of Thatcherism, they allowed the crisis to happen. And, and you know, the, the, the economy was handed over to New Labour at, at the point at which that cycle was reaching its least stable phase. So, in many ways, there was very little that could have been, um, that could have been done, you know, towards the end of the New Labour period, at least. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the, the way in which New Labour tried to regulate the finance sector, which was basically to hand power over to kind of in inverted commas neutral uh, bodies, basically facilitated the kind of regulatory capture that did help to create the financial crisis because, you know, these bodies were increasingly... Um, like dominated by people who had worked in the city, people who were going to work in the city and, you know, people who had lots of connections in the city. So they didn't really have the incentives to properly regulate these places, you know, accompanied by the fact that there was this explicit shift towards light touch regulation, which is basically, mm. you know, if it hasn't been said it's illegal, then you're probably fine. Mm -hmm. um, and this is what, and obviously, you know, the seeds of the financial crisis were ultimately sown in the US subprime mortgage market. But the economic model that we had in the UK was also not particularly stable in and of itself. Um, and we would have likely had another crisis of the kind that we had in the early 1990s mm -hmm. at some point, even if we hadn't had the, the US subprime crisis. Um, so there are a lot of very complicated things going on, but it's definitely, it's not fair to say that Labour caused the financial crisis, but it is fair to say that the, the dominant way of thinking about the economy that existed at that time did not help things. The American economist uh, Hyman Minsky also gets a hearing yeah. in your book about the role of human psychology yes, in like capitalism's yeah. tendency to derail. This seemed to me to be particularly salient. I, I want us to explore that further. If we accept that no system is perfect, but that all systems are governed by the psychology of groups and individuals, what's to stop human psychology from unearthing equally destabilizing features of socialism? Do you ever worry about that? Um yeah, in a way. I mean, I'm sure that no matter what economic model we had, there would be certain problems with it. The unique thing about 
cap the problems that emerge under capitalist societies is that they're always driven by conflict between classes. Mm-hmm. Um, so every capitalist system, you know, is based on an attempt to mute or disguise class conflict in one way or another. You know, under Thatcherism, it was give everyone a house and there'll be many capitalists. Under the post-war consensus, it was the state will play a role in mediating between these two groups. Um, but ultimately, that conflict ends up like spilling out and, and, and creating problems. Under socialism, that wouldn't be an issue because, you know, the idea would be to move towards a system where these big class divisions between these two groups just didn't exist anymore because things were all owned collectively. There wasn't this distinction between people who live off work and those who live off wealth. Everyone works, everyone owns, you know, we all decide together how, how the economy is going to work. Um, but that's not to say that there wouldn't be other problems. You know, that's not to say that we wouldn't to collectively decide to do the wrong things, right? But I would feel like it is more empowering and more kind of um like attuned to the problems that we face at the moment to have a system of decision making and to have an economy that is driven by collective discussion and consensus than it is just to hand power and wealth to the people at the top and say you know make all the decisions and and do what you like with it because you know if we're going to solve climate change we need to all be able to push back against that model of just profit maximization and say that we need something more rational some of the glimpses we get of socialism in action around the world are very attractive, others less so, and it often depends on where in the world you choose to take as an example. Is there a system that you think sufficiently proves socialism already works? Or does socialism ultimately require full global alignment in order to work? I think over the long term, you know, it does. Um, and But over the short term, um, I think there are ways that different countries can kind of experiment with different things. I don't actually think that there is a place at the moment that completely captures everything that, you know, makes democratic socialism democratic socialism. There are lots of social democracies um, and they obviously kind of fare better than uh, the kind of neoliberal model that we've constructed, but they're increasingly being eroded by the same sorts of, you know, issues that have uh, have emerged in, in, in our society, particularly like, you know, uh, mobility of capital makes it harder to tax and spend in the way that would be kind of optimal under under social democrat- democratic systems um, and uh, yeah that kind of the, the changes to the economy and society that result from that particular form of globalization often generate kind of a nativist reaction that again undermine the, undermines those institutions I think we're seeing that in a lot of the Nordic countries at the moment as well um, so really you know I think like I think of this this kind of experiment as similar to what you could have imagined the transition from like you know capitalism to feudalism or even you know on a smaller level kind of a more extractive form of like laissez-faire capitalism to social democratic capitalism like it's not something it's something that you can see pieces of everywhere whether that's in like socialized healthcare systems or community organizing or social housing but it's not uh, emerged in itself as an in an entire in its in its entirety anywhere um and I think, you know, that's in many ways a cause for hope because we obviously haven't discovered the perfect way of organizing the economy, organizing society. But why should that mean that we suddenly stop at this point thinking about new ways to, yeah, organize humanity? We know that different kinds of people emerge under different kinds of systems. We know that human nature is malleable. We know that, uh, like, the way the world works isn't set in stone. So why have we suddenly like decided collectively that things cannot be any better? It seems like a massive failure of our collective imagination and one that suits very much the people who benefit from the current system. 
There's so much that we can't cover here. So I would just like to ask you if you could speak to somebody who has just come of age in order to vote, how would you advise them to think about this coming election? I think I would say, um, you know, there's a load of things I could say about climate change, about fixing the economy, about, you know, tuition fees, about university. But more than anything, I think, you know, now is the chance we have to like defeat this ideology of like capitalist realism, which is that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. You know, we're facing a very stark choice between a kind of uh, Boris Johnson style dystopia with, you know, the UK as a tax haven off the coast of Europe, failure to tackle climate change, massive constraints on migration and all these different things, or an experiment that, yes, is um, that we haven't tried before and so is uncertain, but actually that we know if we can work together and uh, try and imagine and create a different way of organizing the world. And that's really what this project is based on. It's not, you know, Corbyn. It's actually 500,000 people joining the Labour Party and saying we want to build a different kind of society and we're going to knock on doors to do that. That's where I think the real hope and opportunity is coming in this election. It's basically the chance for us as individuals to realize that we can work together to do things differently. I hope I haven't kept you from enjoying your lunch. Not at Um, all. Thank you very much for joining me, Grace. (laughs) Thank you so much.